I don't know what it's like wherever you're listening, but the weather has really started to heat up here in New York, and that can mean only one thing. The unofficial start to summer is right around the corner, and along with it, our annual Summer Read series. This is Chapter 186 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Chernkovich, and this week we've got a few books perfect for sticking in your beach bag this summer. I can think of no better way to start our annual Summer Read book series than with a trip to the water park capital of the world. Located in the heart of America, the Wisconsin Dells is home to the largest concentration of indoor and outdoor water parks on Earth. I'm not kidding, look it up. One of those parks serves as the setting for the opening scene in the Kindred Spirits Supper Club, the delightful new book from author Amy Reichert. And in case you're wondering, the spirits in the title are both real and the afterlife kind. I hope you enjoy our chat as much as I did. So the Kindred Spirits Supper Club is set in the Wisconsin Dells, which is a real place in the Wisconsin, in Wisconsin, and it is equal parts beautiful natural landscape and super kitschy water park capital of the world. And it follows the story of Sabrina Monroe, who is, for a variety of reasons, forced to move back to her childhood bedroom and face the figurative and literal ghosts of her past. Her family has a secret that they, the women can see ghosts, and they help those ghosts with any unfinished business they have. And growing up, this was fairly traumatic for, for Sabrina. And as a result, she has quite a bit of social anxiety, has had difficult connecting, difficulty connecting with other people. So her best friend... Uh, growing up was the one ghost that they couldn't help, Molly, who is sort of a extra member of the family at this point. And she's obsessed with rom-coms. She's super fun, changes outfits on a whim. And Molly has decided that Sabrina needs to get the happy ever after that Molly has never been able to have. So when the new handsome supper club owner moves to town, Molly decides this is what needs to happen and starts and starts taking steps to make that uh, make that a reality, uh, so that Sabrina can have the happy ever after she never did. She's like a ghost Yenta. She is. You're not the only person who's ever said that. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I love Molly. Although I can't even imagine how traumatizing it must be. To, to find out all of a sudden you see ghosts. And I, I actually just read the scene where, where Sabrina, for the first time, when she's giving a presentation in school, sees her first ghost. And yes. there's a reason she has a, a horrible nickname by the school bully, which is P.S. for, for Psycho Sabrina. Yes. Because she freaks mean out bullies a little bit. are just the worst. Right. And yes, you, because of all this, Sabrina suffers from anxiety. But mm-hmm. you treat it in such a respectful way. There's never, uh, during the book, it's not like it's something she has to conquer or overcome or that people mm-hmm. are just telling her you have to get over it. That was something that was very important to me. I have some anxiety, not at all what Sabrina experiences. But I do have people in my life who have to handle anxiety at a much more much more akin to what, what Sabrina experiences. And I think it's really important that people... It's not something you can just get over and that you just need to behave a certain way. That's not how anxiety works. It's, it's your brain playing tricks on you, and you can't stop it. You just have to, hopefully over time, you'll learn some tactics so that it becomes more manageable. But more importantly, 
I feel like the people around somebody needs to understand how that works. And if you have supportive people who accept you for who you are and understand the struggles that you're going through, I think that can make half, you know, that's half the battle too. When you understand that you're going to be accepted and you're not going to be ridiculed and people aren't going to think less of you. I think that's really important. The, the empathy from the others. So I really wanted to explore that. And also there are some practical things that you can do to help. And, and that is a journey that, that Sabrina takes, but you're right. It's not about curing it. It's not like if all of a sudden she becomes outgoing, her world is going to change. You, it's something you learn to live with and manage. And, but that doesn't mean you're going to all of a sudden completely change your personality. And for her, it's, you know, she may have this and she kind of sees like a little bit of a default in herself. Mm -hmm. But the flip side is, is that she probably has more kindness in her than the people Mm -hmm. around her. And she does all these little things that she doesn't even think about and and doesn't want any praise for. And I heard you kind of wanted to inspire the good in everybody with this story. Is that true? That is true. When I started shaping this story and it was coming into being... It was pre-pandemic, but it was still in the midst of all of the the division in our country and how impotent a person can feel when you're, you know, living in your little corner of the world. It's not like you can go to Washington and and change the world in a day. There's it, it can make a person feel very insignificant and unable to improve the world around them. So I started thinking instead of macroly on a smaller scale, what if we all were just a little bit more nicer and a little bit more empathetic? And I, I remember the movie a million years ago, Pay It Forward, where one you do a kindness and then that person does a kindness and it kind of ripples out. And I liked the idea of creating a character who did that, who wasn't doing it because she wanted the attention, but it was her way of connecting to other people and making the world a little bit better. And she didn't like it. Like you said, she doesn't want the praise. She doesn't, she certainly doesn't want the attention. Um, but as a result, I think that her community is better because of her existence in it. And I'd love to see, you know, if, if we can all just make someone else's day better, what a difference that would make. It doesn't have to be a big thing, just a little thing. And it really does spread. And, and I think that would be a lovely if there's one legacy that a book of mine could ever have, gosh, that would be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and I know there's the, there's this argument that maybe kindness can be selfish. Do you think that's true? I do. I, I think that a lot of times people do things because it makes themselves feel better. It maybe makes other people think better of them. But I, I also don't want, but I also don't think that's a bad thing. So there was, I don't know if you remember, if you watched Friends, but there was an episode where I think it was Phoebe and Joey were having this debate about if you do something nice for someone else, are you doing that because you, there's always a selfish component to it. And it kind of got out of hand. Phoebe let a bee stinger. It got a little goofy. Uh, but it was Friends. I do believe that. <laughs> yes, it was Friends. That was the way it went. But I do believe that in a sense that there is a selfish component. And, and that's okay because I think if that's what's going to take people, what's going to motivate people to do kind things, at least to begin with, I'll take it. Whatever your motivation, a kindness is a kindness. So, Sabrina, your main character is a journalist, and I have a <laughs> confession to make, and it's something I've never really said out loud, so I'm, I'm going to say it here. So I'm 
kind of the same kind of journalist she is because I love the research, but I hate picking up the phone <laughs> to call people. And I, I'll find the number and I'll be all set and I'll know who you have to talk to. But like picking up that phone and, and dialing those digits just gets yeah. me really like it takes a lot for me to do that. And I never realized that I was like that or that there would be somebody else mm -hmm. like that, like me out there. And I'm I'm happy to have found mm -hmm. it in Sabrina. And I also love that in the reader's guide at the back of the book, one of the questions okay. is, do you think that was the right job choice for her? Because I have to tell you, I've asked myself that question more than once. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I am happy to validate your existence. Thinking what would be one of the worst jobs somebody with social anxiety could have? And it, to me, journalism is terrifying. Part of, I mean, I love writing books, but there is a component when I have to do research that sometimes I have to pick up the phone and call strangers and ask them for help to ask, you know, to get information. That's horrifying to me, and I hate it. And every time I do it, I have a wonderful friend who is a journalist who kind of like says, Amy, just pick up the phone. The worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to say no. But that's terrifying to me. <laughs> yes, so I know. I, <laughs> So I'm really glad that this, that, that I, you know, even I am proud of you. Just if that doesn't sound kind of powering through your anxiety and doing it anyway, you're <laughs> a better woman than Sabrina. I'm not, I don't have a, a family in the Dells to run away to, although it sounds amazing. Right. Like every time I read books set in a different part of this country that I've never been to before, I'm like, mm -hmm. Oh, I have to go there on my next vacation. It just sounds really pretty but also there's there's a lot of fun stuff to do it is i love the dells so the the dells is i mean it really is when I mean, you get the tourist shops you've got the cheesy uh attractions like a lot of really silly things but you know sometimes playing mini golf with your family and going around uh go kart tracks and riding the you know sliding down water slides is a lot of fun and we go there every year because inevitably, like my son will have a baseball tournament there. So it's it's a wonderful, fun place, especially if you have a family. This being a book about a supper club, there's a lot mm -hmm. of food. There's also a lot mm -hmm. of drinking. And mm -hmm. as I'm reading it, we're reading about all, you know, everybody's always drinking in old fashioned. And I was like, you know, it'd be really great if there were if, if there were a recipe somewhere about this. And I never turned to the end of the book before I finished it, but this time I did. I was like, what do you know? There's a recipe for Wisconsin-style brandy old-fashioned. This is great. Yes. So is that a favorite drink of yours? It is. It is. A brandy old-fashioned sweet that's made with the, the like a Sprite. It's one of my favorite. If I'm going out to dinner, I'll have that beforehand. Uh, and I learned, I didn't realize growing up that we did them differently. It wasn't until I went to Texas and ordered a brandy old fashioned and the guy kind of looked at me funny, like, really, you want a brandy old fashioned? And then I, I, he made it and there was no soda in it. It was just booze. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a little alarming to me. That's not normally how I consume my alcohol. So uh, that was when I learned it, learned about that. And then I realized I needed to share this unique tradition with the rest of the world. Because uh, they really are delicious and very, very consumable if you enjoy such things. It's before noon, and I really would love to have one right now as we're having this conversation. I think you should. I wouldn't judge. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> I know we talked a little bit about the kindness you hope readers take away the fact that maybe they can do one small thing to make the world better. Is that really what you hope they take away from this book, or is it really just, you know, have fun? 
I think first and foremost, I always want readers to have fun. I, I write books so people can feel good after they're done reading it. Uh, I like to say that my books are comfort reads so that when you get done, you kind of want to hug them. Uh, and that's really the first goal. And if they want to take it a step further and, you know, do some nice things for other people, that would be even better. Well, I hope people go out there and pick it up, not only for the for the recipe, but for the laughs. And I had a smile on my face as I'm reading it. So I'm hoping Yay! I haven't I haven't finished it yet, but this is not one of those books I'm going to toss to the side now that I've finished the interview. I'm going to make sh- I'm going to finish this today. Good. So oh, yay. you'll have to let me know what you think. I will you hate it, in which case don't let me know. No, no, no. I, I don't think I mean, unless you really do something awful in like the next, you know, uh, 100 pages or so, I don't I don't think I'm going to hate it. <laughs> I don't think I do. No, I think I think I I think it goes where it needs to go. Amy Reichert, the book is The Kindred Spirits Supper Club. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Lisa. We all like to think that when push comes to shove, our families will do anything for us. But how many of us have family members that would come over in the middle of the night to help us cover up a murder? Can't say mine would. But the aunts in Jesse Q. Sutanto's Dial A for Aunties totally would and do. Jesse joined me via Zoom from Jakarta to talk about her wild story steeped in her Chinese-Indonesian heritage. This is such a crazy and entertaining novel in so many different ways. I mean, I just have to say, you make murder seem like a lot of fun. (laughs) Thank you so much. That is such high praise. Where did the inspiration for the story come from? So I've always wanted to write about my family, um, but it just wasn't uh, coming out right because I was trying to make it realistic. And my family is just like so over the top that no story was kind of doing them justice. So then I was like, ah, what if I just like lean into, you know, the ridiculous and throw in something just so over the top, like a dead body. And then it just clicked and I was like, yes. Um, And that was how it all began. So what you're saying is that your real family would help you move a body? Oh, they totally would. Yeah. (laughs) How much of the dynamics that we see in the book of all the aunties, uh, you know, and and everything else is is based on how you and your own family interact? So there is a a real hierarchy in my family. And I I think maybe this is cultural because it's like, you know, like in the book, the main character calls her aunties like big aunt, second aunt, uh, you know, by like their ranking. And uh, so that is true in my family. And I think true for uh, most families here in uh, in Indonesia. Uh, so that is definitely based on reality. And of course, all the shifting alliances and rivalries. Uh, oh, wait, no. If I say like that they're like based on my family, my family will kill me. So, <laughs> so okay, okay. Let, let's just say that they're loosely based on people I happen to know. <laughs> I think any family has its sibling rivalries because, you know, among the aunts, among the sisters, you know, we have, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the two oldest ones are, are, are always trying to one up each other and the two youngest yeah. ones 
you know, they they don't really get along, but they do get along. Like when push comes to shove, family is what matters first. And that's really like the the overarching theme of this story is is the, the, the bonds of family and what family will do to protect each other. Yeah, exactly. Your characters are are constantly flowing in and out of languages like Indonesian and, Mar- and Mandarin to English. Yeah. And you've written the uh, both a letter at the beginning of the book and I saw an article you wrote for Cosmopolitan magazine that you purposely wanted to make sure that the English your aunties speak in the book is broken. Why was that so important to mm-hmm. you? I wanted to humanize people who speak broken English, basically, because I feel like um, in a lot of uh, media, um, they... Like when people are shown to be speaking broken English, they're kind of shown to be uh, less intelligent, uh, you know, slower on the uptake. And uh, to me, it's just been very inaccurate uh, in my experience. And so I wanted to show that, well, actually, these people are just as intelligent, um, just as witty. Uh, It's just that, you know, when they're speaking uh, in a foreign language, then it's uh, they've got like that extra barrier to overcome. It's crazy too that people think that way because I come from a family where my parents' English wasn't their first language. They each, each spoke a separate oh. a separate language. And mm-hmm. when you really stop to think about it, like the, the, the people who criticize non-native English speakers are people who oftentimes only speak one language, which is English. Yeah. <laughs> and like yeah. you think about the the families from everywhere else. I mean, the, the characters yeah. in your book don't just speak one language. They speak three or four or five. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So that whole idea that they're not intelligent, it's really, it. it's shameful that people think that. And I'm glad that you're trying to shine a light to be on. This is mm-hmm. not what that means. Thank you. I know the book is going to be adapted for Netflix. I can't wait uh-huh. to see that because this would be so much fun. Do you think, you know, speaking about these languages, do you hope it will be produced in that kind of way where we'll have this wonderful melting pot of all different languages being spoken? Oh, yeah, totally. So the screenwriter that uh, we have for the movie is Courtney Kang, and she's just been so wonderful. She is uh, constantly emailing me to ask things like, uh, what would be the Indonesian phrase that they would use, um, you know, in this situation? Uh, what, like, if they're surprised uh, in a happy way versus if they're, like, surprised in a bad way? Like, what would they say in Indonesian? And I'm like, oh, my God, these are such great questions. And it's kind of showing me that, like, she is really putting in so much attention to detail. Oh, and she also asked me, like, about uh, the food, like, what kind of Indonesian snacks Uh, might they have or, you know, Chinese snacks that they might have lying around the house uh, just to set the scene. So it's things that I never even thought of. I I really can't wait to read the script. I love that you brought up food because I think one of my favorite little scenes in your book, it comes at the very beginning when Mehdi, your main character, tells her mom, hey, mom, I've got a, a dead body in my trunk. I need help. And she calls all, <laughs> yeah. she calls all the ants, and before the ants all get there, she's like, "Well, we have to cut up fruit. We have to cut up mangoes before they get here." Yeah. And I guess that's a cultural thing, and because it, it's all about um, like saving face, losing face, right? Yeah, 
Yes. Uh, so yeah, that's actually my my favorite scene <laughs> because it's uh, based on like real life. Like you know, there have been moments in my family where I felt like, oh, this is an urgent situation that needs like resolving immediately. And I'm like, well, can we call, you know, one of the aunts to come help? And then, and then my dad is like, ah, uh, no, because, uh, you know, we don't have enough food to like offer to her. So we need to make sure that we prep, you know, enough, like a feast basically before she comes over. <laughs> That's so funny. How many aunts and uncles and, and cousins do you have? Uh, so I have so many. Um, my dad is one of seven and my mom is one of nine. So I have like a whole ton of them. Uh, I think I have 42 first cousins uh, and I've lost count of uh, the number of like nieces and nephews that I have. That is crazy. I can't even imagine coming from a family that big, but there must be so much material there to write about. Oh yeah, totally. But then, you know, I have to like kind of change a lot of details so that people don't recognize like hey you're writing about my experience (laughs) what impression do you want to leave with readers after they're they've done reading this book ah what impression um so i want them to know that uh chinese indonesians are very (laughs) very over the top um and uh that we are very welcoming and warm Uh, So I think that is what I want to leave people with. (laughs) And that if you are a friend or a family, they will do anything for you is the impression I get. (laughs) Yes. And they will feed you a lot. (laughs) Listen, that sounds like a great deal in my book. Yeah. (laughs) We've been talking with Jesse Q. Sutanto. The new book is Dial A for Aunties. Thank you so much for your time today. If, as the weather gets warmer, you find yourself in the mood for a fun, modern love story that will keep you smiling, then I assure you, Georgia Clark hits all the right notes with It Had to Be You. Centered around a wedding planning business, her story celebrates love in all its many forms. First love, gay love, interracial love, secret love, second chances at love, you name it, and it's probably in this charming book. I started off our interview by asking her why she wanted to write about so many different kinds of love. Oh gosh, well who doesn't want to write about love in so many different forms? It just sounds like a dream assignment. Uh, I had the idea for It Had To Be You, which takes place within the wedding planning business as our kickoff spot, because over the whole course of writing and, and ideating the book, I was getting married myself. so. I asked my then-girlfriend, now wife, to marry me, please, uh, at the end of 2018 and then was writing it over 2019, which is the year that we got married. So I definitely had weddings on the brain and was thinking a lot about the role they play in our society, what it means to, to be a bride, especially a queer bride, and just sort of really thinking deeply about about everything to do with weddings and, and getting curious about the people behind the scenes. So the concept of the novel uh, is five interconnecting love stories that take place between two 
like wedding planners who each have their own love story and then the other love stories are from the wedding vendors perspectives the florists and the caterers and the musicians and and these are all people of course that we were starting to you know contract with and deal with and get to know and I was just interested in what their lives would be like assisting with the celebration and performance of love on a daily or weekly basis when they themselves are also you know, fully realized human beings who have their own lives going on behind the scenes. So that was one of the inspirations for It Had to Be You. Uh, one of the questions I had is because I knew that you were writing this novel while also planning a wedding. And I was going to ask how you managed that, but I think you kind of gave it away to me off air when you mentioned you're a very organized person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but like an uh, annoyingly organized person, I guess. Yeah, and I've finished every project I've ever started, even the ones that I definitely should not have. And this book was, I mean, it really sort of formed to think to me, it was a great, like you sort of said, like it was a great escape. It was a wonderful thing to dive back into when you know, the guest list was getting overwhelming or, or, or what, you know, the date was hurtling at me. Being able to sort of slip into this world of these funny, sweet, sort of authentic characters that I love was such a gift and such a balm. And uh, you know, I love I love writing, and I love being I loved being with this cast of characters. It was it was like people who say, "I love going to work every day." I love my coworkers. Like that's how I felt about this book. Like I just love showing up, and here they all were, and we had so much fun together. A true gift, really, and and then just something to sort of you know, I love life imitating art. It's kind of fun to blur those boundaries, and uh, I really got to do this with this book a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you maybe write about and incorporate something into your wedding? Or was there something from your wedding that you incorporated into the book? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll give you a little a little sneak peek. No spoilers. But there is a wedding that takes place at the end of the book where we hear some vows. And those vows that are spoken are all there's parts of them that are lifted directly from my vows that I spoke to my wife. Um, which she has, you know, given me permission to put in the book <laughs> because when you take things from your real life and put them into fiction, I feel like readers can tell that you're being truthful and uh, it just makes the reading experience more exciting. And because I really believe that what we're looking for in fiction is either to, to learn something new about how other people live their life and maybe we don't know how they live their life because they're different to us in some way, like whether that's their gender or their sexuality or, you know, gender expression or race or age or class or whatever. Or we're looking to see ourselves reflected more clearly um, to be able to, you know, enjoy the words of a writer who can articulate our own experience in a way that rings instantly true, but we'd never thought about that before that that's the moments in fiction that I feel the most like fired up and turned on when I'm learning something new or seeing myself more clearly and I hope that through having this ensemble cast that both of those things can happen for readers in in It Had to Be You. I was going to say having read your book and knowing who this cast of characters is that that viewpoint makes so much sense because we are talking about a very diverse cast of characters whether it's race or sex or how they sexually identify or even what they do in their lives from someone who is super rich to someone who is barely struggling to get by. It's right. you you cover a wide spectrum of humanity. 
Yeah, this is my fifth novel. So, um, and I also have written two novels that didn't get published. So not my first time at the rodeo. Uh, regular seat at the rodeo have had my punch card stamped many times at the rodeo. So I feel like by this time and by this age, I felt more confident in taking on something that was more ambitious, juggling five storylines, keeping everyone's balls in the air at the same time. And I've just lived, you know, more life than I have when I, you know, put my first novel out in my late 20s, which was much more closely aligned with my own experience. Like, you know, I live in New York City. I meet lots of different people all the time and have been, you know, moved through different spaces, like some hyper-rich, you know, sort of very privileged spaces. And then I'm an artist, so lots of my friends are struggling comedians and musicians and all of that kind of thing, which I love. And so just being able to offer perspective on all of those different types of ways of living with a you know compassionate and generous eye I think is the one of the potential roles of the writer. So using your words this is not your first time at the rodeo but did I hear in writing this book you threw away a year's worth of work? Yeah and <laughs> not the first one I've done that either. <laughs> so um, yeah we sold my agent um, Alison Hunter uh, my beloved agent and I Sold this book off a 25,000-word submission in, in the end of 2018. And, you know, we, we sold it. We sold it to my, to my editor and we contracted. And we were having drinks afterwards. And I could tell my agent didn't love the work. She, you know, she'd given notes on it whatever. But I could tell she wasn't, you know, wouldn't die on a hill over it. And so I just said to her, like, just be totally frank with me. I feel like I started a lot of conversations this way with my agent. Be honest with me. Give it to me straight do you think this book will sell? Do you like it? And she said, no. <laughs> so That's got to be hard. That's got to be hard to hear. It's super hard, but, oh, man, I have just learned over the, you know, decades of being an artist, if you don't ask those questions and if you just do what's easy as opposed to what you know in your gut to be true, you'll shoot yourself in the foot. So I, you know, the first, reiteration of this book it had the same premise but the tone of the original submission was much darker in my agent's word it was spiky and when we talk about spiky literature a classic example would be like a gone girl you know like it's it's dark it's acerbic it's clever it's good but it's not feel good and fuzzy it's you know it's tough and that's really appropriate for you know a, a thriller or whatever but my agent was like I think you can really lean into the premise the real warm idea in here with weddings and love and a woman rebuilding herself after tragedy. And I think it can be much more heartfelt and and funny. And I like, you know, like absorbed that, that feedback and then presented it to my editor and she agreed. She's like, yep, I can definitely do that direction. I think that would be a really interesting direction. Like let's go for it. So then in the beginning of 2019, I was at a writer's residency. Um, the Roland Writer's Residency was very lucky to be invited on that residency. Perfect timing to throw away 25,000 words, keep the premise and start again. And that's when I really lent into the idea of the five interconnecting love stories. So it would be not just one romance. It would be five. It would be like a rom-com on steroids. <laughs> it would be so, you know, like multiple meet cutes, multiple grand gestures, like a real kaleidoscope of love. And that's when the book really came alive. So, 
listen to your agent, ask the hard questions and don't be afraid to do the work. That's my takeaway for you. (laughs) And, you know, the book has been compared to Love Actually because I think when people think of a multi-storyline love story, that's really the, the, the number one thing that pops into their heads. So that being said, has there been any interest to maybe make some sort of screen adaptation? Yeah, yes. We have had started to get inquiries in and I'm really excited to see what that would look like. I w- was originally wanted to be a filmmaker. Like when I was a kid, when I was in high school, like I wanted to be a film director. I went to uni and studied filmmaking and screenwriting. I spent time in my 20s um, in Australia when I was living in Sydney. I'm Australian, uh, trying to, you know, write TV shows, write pilots, make little, I made some short films and things like that. And it never really happened for me. And then when I moved to New York in my late 20s, I sort of refocused into novel writing because I realized it would be, it would give me the same pleasure of being able to get a story out of my head, like onto a page and be able to spend my days dreaming um, and writing and writing stories. So I, you know, that, that was how I ended up becoming a novelist, but I've always wanted to write for a screen. And I've told my film agents, like I'm only selling the rights if I get to write it. So that's, on the record and yeah i would i would deeply love for a a tv show or a film to be made and and the love actually comparison i find delightful it's uh you know important to know it's not like a retelling of love actually it's not like i'm taking these characters and moving them into the 21st century which is sometimes what we mean when we say like a retelling of pride and prejudice or whatever it's just the structure it's just that's all it is so it's just the idea of these interconnecting love stories between a cast of characters who are sort of loose, you know, all sort of know each other loosely and taking place over a you know span of time. But, you know, the idea of it's not to do with those characters. And, and what I was excited to do was to update the Love Actually structure because that beloved film isn't, you know, a mirror to our times right now. We've really come a long way as far as the importance of diversity and representation. So, uh, it was a, a fun project, and but I think if you like that film and that kind of storytelling, you'll like this book. So I think one of the things that really struck me about the book is that a lot of the things in it we haven't been able to do for the last year. I mean, yeah. when's the last time anyone attended a 200-person oh, wedding, you know? Exactly, yeah. So are you looking forward to the day where we can do something like that again or go see, you know, a really good band in a bar somewhere in New York? Oh, definitely. Gosh, I, I, I host a live storytelling show uh, called Generation Women. We invite a performer in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s plus to tell an original story on a theme. We've been around since 2017, a monthly live show here in New York City where I live. And of course, we've done virtual shows since April of 2020 and we are just back to live shows. So I am so excited to get back in a room full of people telling stories, uh, having a laugh, having a good, t- like, you know, crying as well. It's one of those sort of shows. And uh, yeah, I, I can't wait. I've really missed all of the book parties and the picnics and just, just everything. It's, it was, you know, a funny time because I finished the edits for this in March of 2020. So there was never, I mean, I remember sending an, a note to my editor as society was collapsing, being like, do I need to <laughs> re-dig anything? And she was like, no, 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 no. And like, you know, basically we're already, A, we're done. And B, I mean, I didn't even know how that would have happened at that point. But um, yeah, it's, it's sort of, 
because the tales of these things are so long, I think some readers assume that I was, you know, writing it over COVID, but it was it was done by that by that time. Uh, and and hopefully should be just a wonderful reminder of how life was and how it will be again in the future. Yes, a lot of more in-person, face-to-face experiences as opposed to just doing it over the computer. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I think I'm done with Zoom shows for now. (laughs) And one final question for you, since this is a story all about love. What does love mean to you? Oh, gosh, what a beautiful question. How do I even begin to answer that? I I don't think I really knew. I mean, I knew the idea of what love um, was when I was in my, you know, 20s and, and crashing through life. Uh, but I think that my definition of love back then, would, I was sort of mis- not mistaking, but interpreting feelings of lust, obsession, um you know, admiration. There was sort of like a lot going on in my um, infatuations, of which I had many. Uh, And also just sort of working through my own sexuality. And I came out when I was 19, uh, but I've like dated men and women. And and that has, I think some people seem to find that really like exciting, but I found it very confusing and um, figure out like, who am I really suited with and why? And and there's like a lot of big questions that we can talk about. But when I met my wife, um, we were, neither of us had really been in a, a serious long-term relationship. My first long-term relationship before that, I was um, at uni. And then, so we were sort of learning about how to be in partnership with someone, how to be in a committed relationship with someone, how to make a life with someone together, which was, which was really nice because we were really just figuring out a lot of um, stuff as the years went by. We've been together now um, for uh, like eight, eight years or so. And I think that my definition of love now is a more seasoned with that experience. And it's so much more about truly seeing a relationship. And this is, I guess I'm talking about sexual love. Like we can talk about this, you know, platonic love between friends and between family, which are all just as valid. But in terms of my relationship, you know, my my wife, Lindsay, really taught me a lot about myself. I think I taught a lot about herself because in relationships, you know, you really hold, you just, there's like a mirror and you're seeing all of the things that you thought were objective about yourself and about humans. It's like, oh, this is subjective. Like this is, not everyone feels this way. Not everyone has this need. You don't have this need. How are we going to figure out a way in which my needs get met, you know, and and in a way that feels equal to us? And and so my experience of love is about truly becoming a, a team, like a partnership. I was always a very independent person. I, you know, struck off and, you know, left my home country and made a life and was always like, I just got to take care of myself, which I think a lot of people who leave home single and who kind of, especially if you forge like a non-traditional career path, you can, re- you really feel like I got to take care of me. Like I got to figure myself out and protect myself and make a life for myself. And then when it, I met someone else, like it was this process of kind of dismantling that idea and rebuilding something that was like a house for the two of us, as opposed to just my little house that you can come into every now and again. And that was 
really a transformational experience for me to, to sort of come at life as like a pair and to truly appreciate what we both bring to the table, that we both have different perspectives of perspectives on life there is no there is no truth there's just the truth that we make for ourselves and to really understand that and respect that and and honestly like I just my wife and I just have so much fun like I, I'm working on a new book right now and I just wrote this line about how one of the characters who's married to a woman and has just been married thought that marriage was going to be something much more coolly elegant than it turned out to be, which was just the two of them mauling each other all the time and giggling. And that's kind of how I still feel. Like, we have so much fun together. She's my best friend. She's my muse and my, you know, the person I turn to for advice. And which, you know, like, you probably should have, like, a diverse group of people for that. But, you know, hashtag quarantine COVID and a lot about one person. Uh, So that's my long-winded answer about love. (laughs) Like the title says, it had to be you. It had to be you. That's right. Georgia Clark, thank you for spending some time with us today to talk about the book. Like I said at the top of this interview, it's the perfect little bit of escapism from a really crazy year. And hopefully the scenarios in there are something we can all look forward to uh, going forward in 2021. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was so much fun to chat. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time around, we'll talk with Jennifer Weiner about her latest beach read set on Cape Cod. I, for one, can't wait for this summer and all the wonderful reading I planned on doing outdoors without my mask. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.